The reading this morning is from John chapter 13, verses 18 to 38. And it can be found on page 1080 of the Pew Bibles. I am not referring to all of you. I know those who I've chosen. But this is to fulfill this passage of scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I'm telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another, at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread which I have dipped into the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, What you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, Some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning everyone. Uh, my name's Scott, one of the ministers here. Lovely to be with you this morning. If you could keep your Bibles open to John 13, that would be uh, super helpful. I am going to pray and then we are going to get right underway. Heavenly Father, thank you for your words to us in Scripture. And help us to just read them now 
and uh, be willing to change our lives in response to them. Amen. When I was uh, 16 years old, I went on an outdoor education leadership camp with my school for a week down in the Southern Highlands. Now, it was, uh, when I say Southern Highlands, it was more Belangelo State Forest than Bowral Tea Rooms, so get that. But an integral part of the leadership experience was a full 24 hours in which we were driven out into the middle of the bush by ourselves with just food, a tent, a sleeping bag, and that was about it. And the whole experience was called solo because that was literally the experience in the bush with the most basic necessities on your own for a full 24 hours. Can I say, it is amazing how much noise our native critters make in the minutes immediately after it gets dark. (laughs) We were dropped off at kind of intervals, uh, I guess a mile or two apart, at about three o'clock in the afternoon. So you got set up, and then you uh, made your dinner, and then you settled in for the night, you settled in to think. But it was actually pretty early the next morning when I heard noises, people noises, and uh, I hid behind my tent, huddled, careful, fearful, until I realized that the noise had come from my fellow campers who, you know, were two miles down the road, four miles down the road, who would just hike to the next tent, to the next tent, to the next tent, to my tent, and we played cards and we ate chocolate and I'm pretty sure there were cigarettes there. We couldn't even last 24 hours solo which I was disappointed about because I really wanted to give it a go. But it shows you something about human nature in that we hate to go it alone, don't we? really hate that. And what we see today is that as we near the approach of Jesus' death, he will be utterly alone. And it will play out in a traumatic way just hours after Jesus predicts it here in the upper room where he is with his disciples this one last night before his execution. And humanly speaking, it's really the, the opposite of what you would rightly expect. Not just because Jesus is sharing the Passover meal with his disciples, which is a communal kind of celebration, but because within our passage today, Jesus is talking about glory. Have a look with me, verse 31. Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. Now, it seems to me that if you read those verses by themselves, you think Jesus is saying, now is my time to shine. The spotlight is on me. It's my moment. Well, it is, I guess, but only because it's the moment of his suffering, the moment of his death in bleak isolation, having been deserted by his disciples, betrayed by Judas and denied by Peter. It's much more like um, Bill Shorten's lonesome concession speech than it is ScoMo's victory speech. And so today we're going to look at each of the figures in the passage, uh, Judas, Peter, the disciples, to see what lessons they hold for us now that Jesus has indeed been glorified in his death for our sakes. Well, firstly then, let's look at Judas, the betrayer. You might remember the week before Mother's Day, we started in John 13 with that intriguing foot-washing ceremony where Jesus, the Jew, the master, the teacher, washed the feet of the disciples, the followers, the students in a scandalous act of humble service. It was an act that he expects all of his followers to mimic in a fashion, that is, as we serve one another humbly. But it was also an act that anticipated his death on the cross for our sins in our place, 
to cleanse us once for all should we turn to him in faith. And so you can see there in verse 10 his wonderfully warming words to Peter and to us. In verse 10 he says, you are clean. You come to Jesus in faith, you are clean. Not because of what we do for Jesus, but of course because of what he has done for us. Yet have a look in that very same sentence, verse 10. He says, you are clean, Peter, though not every one of you disciples is clean, which is a reference to Judas, whom he knew would betray him. And that plays itself out before us here tonight. That Judas would betray him is not a surprise to Jesus. He's not been outflanked by this shock revelation. As far back as verse 2, we're told that the betrayal is in motion. Uh, In verse 11, Jesus knew that Judas would betray him. In verse 18, he even sees it as a fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. And yet he goes, or and so I guess, he goes direct with that news in verse 21 as it churned within him. Troubled in spirits, he says to his disciples in verse 21, Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. Now, I must say, I have always pictured this conversation differently. I always thought the whole group could hear the whole conversation. I never understood why Judas was so brazen or stupid to take the bread from Jesus just after he'd heard Jesus say, the fellow who takes the bread is the betrayer. So perhaps an understanding of the layout of the room might help. Jews, like Jesus and the disciples, would often eat at tables, seated on chairs, but for special occasions like this one, they adopted the Greek custom of reclining. There would be a low central table, like here, where um, the food would be placed, and then a series of cushions or couches would be laid out in a sort of a U-shape around the table. And they would lie on their left side, with their heads inwards, close to the food, resting on their left elbow, eating with their right hand. And so you've got this public declaration, one of you is going to betray me, in verse 21. And then the silent, blank, querying stares of the gobsmacked disciples. But then a more private conversation ensued between Peter and John, who were reclining closer to Jesus, in which Peter kind of nudges John, or maybe he makes you know, some kind of signal, Um, in verse 25 to find out the identity of the betrayer and so in verse 25 and I want you to picture this imagining the layout that I've just described where the text literally says John the disciple whom Jesus loved leant back against Jesus breast he leant kind of on his chest as a good friend might do and asked Jesus who is it to which Jesus responds to his best earthly friend the one whom he, could, he would entrust his own mother, as we heard last week, the disciple whom Jesus loved in verse 26, it's the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I've dipped it in the dish. Jesus knew. Now John knew. And perhaps Peter knew too, but none of the others knew. And Judas hadn't heard this whispered conversation as Jesus passed that morsel of bread to Judas. And you know, because the gift of a chunk of bread by the host was a mark of special favour on such occasions, you suspect that Jesus' offering of him the morsel of bread was a final appeal of friendship by Jesus. Don't do it. Even in this moment of betrayal, we see the great mercy of God in Christ 
with this final pleading of one comrade to another. But Judas closes his heart and his fate along with Jesus is sealed and only Satan is left to fill that void, which he does clearly there in verse 27. I don't know if you saw last week that for the first time the Roman Catholic Church opened up its annual exorcism convention in Rome to representatives of all major Christian denominations, including the Lutherans, Greek Orthodox and Protestant priests. I'm a bit miffed. I did not get an invitation myself. You can imagine the media having a field day with this, can't you? (laughs) Exorcism goes mainstream was one of the headlines I read. And uh, the whole thing, you know, proved a rich mine of humour for FM radio hosts one afternoon as I drove home. Uh, Ultimately, they weren't very funny. Verse 27 makes us feel uneasy for a variety of reasons, doesn't it? Uh, Did Judas have any option? Was he just a plaything in Satan's scheme? Can a Christian be possessed by Satan or demons? What is the role of Satan in our temptation? Very good questions to ask. Those of you who are in growth groups will have the chance to read some more background from Judas or about Judas from Matthew's Gospel and also in John's Gospel. And it certainly doesn't cast Judas in a favourable light. You simply cannot argue that Judas was an innocent and unwilling pawn in Satan's plotting. He was there because he wanted to be there. And I further don't think that a Christian person can be possessed by Satan or by demons. Every Christian has got God's Holy Spirit in residence in their own spirits. That's what Romans 8 says. And do you know what? There's just not enough room for dual occupancy. So a Christian might be tempted, might even be kind of attacked by demons. There might be certain sins or addictions that have got footholds in a Christian's life or heart that makes it entirely fitting to confess sin, entirely fitting to pray for deliverance. In fact, isn't that what we pray in the Lord's Prayer? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. But I think it's impossible for a Christian to be demon-possessed. So what then is the role of Satan in temptation? Well, I reckon you can only work it out if you go to the zoo. So uh, let's go to the zoo. I like going to the zoo. Um, Favourite part of the zoo is the big cat enclosures. To me, you know, like a little grey koala. It's always got a wet bottom and is asleep. It's very boring. So I like the big cats, especially the lion. You know, the king of the jungle, king of the beasts. They've got this limitless potential to destroy. It's captivating. Well, once I was there and uh, one of the magnificent beautiful lionesses got off her porch thing and she sat at the very front of the enclosure so that her face was almost pressed up against the glass and there are all these little kids you know the kind of kids that will probably go to the kids holiday club if they survive till then and uh, they were going up to the lioness and they were kind of banging on the glass and they're looking at their parents (laughs) you know (laughs) and they were doing that for I reckon about five minutes and then out of nowhere quick as lightning The lioness stood up and she swatted one of her enormous paws at the glass right in front of these snotty little kids. And they shrieked and all that. And I I just wonder whether that's a helpful way of thinking about the devil. Like real and roaring, capable of bringing both inward temptation and external suffering, and yet also resistible, one that cannot harm us if we are determined. 
much like the lioness behind the glass couldn't harm the kids. You know, friends, Satan can be resisted. Uh, during this week, growth groups will get to consider some New Testament passages in James and the book of 1 Peter. They're, they're going to encourage us that he has been resisted by Christians for millennia. It's as though he is both a roaring lion and a timid kitten, depending on what your natural way of thinking about him is. Uh, if you dismiss Satan as a figment of the imagination, just an old myth, a cartoon devil, fodder for FM humour, watch out. He's a roaring lion with a killer appetite. But if you give him too much power, either because you think that you have no option but to give in to temptation, or you just sort of fear him unduly, well, he's a timid little kitten, resistible entirely. And in fact, one who will run away from us if we have a little bit of determination about ourselves. And he was certainly resistible by Judas, had he wanted to. But Judas' heart was united with that of Satan to bring down Jesus, which he faithfully did later in the garden, the very same evening. Do it quickly, says Jesus to Judas, as the puzzled disciples listened in. And he did. Judas, the betrayer. Well, that brings us to uh, Peter, the denier. And you have to admit that John 13 is uh, not one of Peter's finest hours. Uh, early in the chapter, you remember he completely misreads Jesus' attempt to wash his feet, first resisting in self-reliance or self-righteousness. Lord, you shall never wash my feet. And then in verse 9, overreaching. Oh, Lord, wash my head and my hands too. <laughs> what a goose. At the end of the chapter, he overreaches, he overpromises, he overestimates himself horribly one more time. Jesus has just shared in verses 31 and 32, like we've already read, that he will be glorified, meaning that he's about to be killed and that his father would be glorified through his obedience unto death and that this would necessitate Jesus leaving the disciples and returning to his heavenly father, although he probably wasn't quite as clear about it as that. And so Peter presses him in verse 36, have a look. Lord, where are you going? To which Jesus replies, You can't follow me now, although you'll follow me later, which is a reference to the fact that Peter would eventually follow Jesus in martyrdom, but that's years down the track. Our concern is for this one last night. And despite his protestations, I can follow you right now. I will lay down my life for you. Jesus predicts that before the rooster crows, that is before sunrise, Peter will deny, disown, dissociate himself from Jesus, not once but three times. And so you have Judas, the betrayer, under the influence of Satan. You have Peter, the denier, always prone to overestimating himself. And then finally you have the disciples, the deserters. You know, Matthew and Mark in their Gospels, they record that the other disciples made the same protestations as Peter. I'll never disown you, Lord. But when push comes to shove, a little later that same night, they all flee. Maybe John skulked back in time to witness the crucifixion, but man, they are a bunch of bolters. But perhaps I'm getting ahead of myself here because at this stage they're still with him. And as he prepares to leave, he instructs them to love, to love one another as he has loved them. <coughs> it's not a new command because nobody had ever thought of it before. 
Love for other was a key plank in the covenant life of the Old Testament people of God. You might also remember that Jesus kind of reframed um, the span of love to include any neighbour who crossed your path in his parable of the Good Samaritan. But the newness of the command is to love one another in the way that Jesus has loved us. It's not just as we love ourselves. I mean, any religion can make that suggestion, and most of them do. But the command is to love one another sacrificially, even to the point of dying for one another. Well, that is a new command, and one which we would do well to consider thoughtfully. And he even says this sacrificial love for one another would be the identifying mark of Jesus' disciples from the time that he left this world onwards. Uh, open for a drink. Not going to happen. Hey, um, do you like watching crime dramas? No one likes watching crime. Gillian likes watching crime dramas. Gillian, because you like watching crime dramas, we all want to watch crime dramas now. I love them, uh, although I think there's a point where you can watch too many of them. Uh, you know, where you get unduly fascinated by violence and you get titillated by death. But I think in principle they're okay to watch, you know, because at the very centre of crime dramas there is a search. It's a search for truth and it's a search for justice, which are admirable and noble things. And if you've ever watched crime dramas, you know that when the good guys are searching for the bad guys... Thanks so much, Pam. Ah, now that is good water. Whenever the good guys are searching for the bad guys, they'll often point out an identifying mark, a unique feature of person by which you know you've got the villain. It, it, it could be a, a birthmark. It might be a visible scar. It might be a tattoo. You know, friends, that love from one Christian to another is the birthmark. It's the visible scar. It's the tattoo that identifies us not as the villains, but as the disciples of Jesus. It's the way the world will know that we belong to him. Because you can't detect who the disciples of Jesus are by their physical proximity to him now that he's returned to the Father in heaven. You can't necessarily detect them from what they say, how loud they sing, what they put on Twitter or Instagram. But you can tell them by how they love one another. It's the identifying mark. It's the visible sign. And I take it that Jesus is saying it will have an evangelistic edge. That is, when, when people see Christians loving each other sacrificially, they will not only know who's Christian, they will also want to know Christ himself. Now, as we come to working out what this means for us, uh, I'm not going to set out a whole bunch of super specific ways that you can love one another. Two weeks ago, when we talked about serving one another, we talked about a whole bunch of super specific ways we can do that. If you missed it, uh, just listen to the sermon podcast. If you've forgotten it, just listen to the sermon podcast. But I would like us to consider it broadly. I mean, let me ask you the question, why should Christians care about the environment and climate change? You ever thought about that? I take it it's not just because we're to be good stewards of the world God created, but also because something like climate change tends to affect our poorest neighbours the most, and many of them are our Christian brothers and sisters. 
I mean, you just think of low-lying Pacific islands that are literally being swallowed by the sea. Many of those people are our brothers and sisters. So loving them means we've got to care about the environment. I must say I found this uh, very difficult this week when I voted. Uh, maybe you voted three weeks ago, whenever you did it. Uh, and I wonder when you voted, did you think about which government might provide a more just and fair and free democracy for all Australians, many of whom are our Christian brothers and sisters? Because we've got to think more broadly than just about tax cuts and franking credits. There's no doubt that when Jesus is talking about loving one another, what's foremost in his mind, certainly not franking credits, <laughs> that'd be weird, uh, is loving one another in close proximity to each other. How will that play out, do you think, in your home? If you're married to a Christian, how will that play out in your marriage? Uh, or your parenting or grandparenting? Uh, how will that play itself out in church life? Maybe when Andrew Graham, who's just taken over the pastoral care ministry, rings up and says, I think you should be involved in pastoral care. Maybe you'll embrace that opportunity rather than resist it. It could mean that, amongst many other things, that would be good to throw around in growth groups and over morning tea this morning. But to finish today, what I want to do is I want to go back to, uh, to the central figures from today's passage. Peter, Judas, Jesus. And I want to start with Jesus to suggest to you that when we talk about his suffering, central to it is his isolation from those he walked most closely with in his earthly life. At Easter, we, we reflected on the fact that he was spurned by his heavenly Father on the cross, absorbing the judgment that rightly attaches to our sins and shortcomings, not his. <clears throat> Last week, Kelsey evocatively shared with us that even, even at the moment uh, he was suffering, at the hands of his human enemies. You remember the, the jeers of the jostling crowd, the cruel jokes of the Pharisees, that he still thought of others. Today we reflect on the desertion, the denial, and the betrayal of his closest earthly friends. My, earth, uh, my growth group, my earth group, that's odd. Uh, in my growth group, we've got a number of thoughtful Daves. Good to have them in your group. And one of the thoughtful Daves, he kind of queried why the whole Judas bit is in the story. You know, Jesus is a public figure. People knew who he was. He was open. Probably need to do the whole betray him with the kiss in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, is it all a bunch of unnecessary cloak and dagger theatrics? Bit of a peripheral side story. I mean, why is it in there? And I take it, it's in there because it actually happened. That is, it's factual rather than fabricated. But I further suggest that, that much more than being an unnecessary side feature, the betrayal by Judas, along with the denial by Peter and the general desertion of the disciples, shows us that Jesus experienced a very full measure of isolation, a very full measure of loneliness when he needed his friends the most. Is it not true that it's much easier to fill an empty stomach or to heal a broken limb than to truly restore a betrayed, lonely, and broken heart. Some of you will know that very well. I submit to you today that so does our Saviour. And yet he still did not waver 
in his earthly mission and he still cares about your betrayed, lonely and broken heart. And so you can take that to him in prayer, fully assured that he understands it and that he loves you. And you know, has commanded all his followers in every age to love one another. And I hope that will some, in some way find its way to you so that perhaps that's part of the way that you can be restored. But I was thinking more about the Peter and Judas thing and especially what the figure of Judas contributes. And I wonder if part of the answer is that we are to mark the great contrast between the outcomes for Peter and Judas. One betrayed Jesus, one denied him, which is a kind of betrayal anyway. And so you think the, the acts weren't that different. They just vary. They differed in the degree of passivity, right? But you think of the outcomes. Peter repented of his actions. He went back to Jesus. He was forgiven by him and accepted back. Judas only regretted his actions. He went back to the religious leaders and was forlorn. Peter was restored to Jesus, went on to do great things for God. Judas was rejected by the leaders and he went to hell. Their betrayals were not that different, just a difference in the degree of passivity, but the outcomes could not be more apart. Now, what does that suggest to you, you deserter, you denier, you betrayer? Because we all desert, deny and betray him in many ways. Every time we sin, we deny his rule over our lives, don't we? We betray him as the giver of good things. We doubt his generosity to us as we grab every other thing. And we often desert and deny him plainly with our goofy and guilty silence. What do the contrasting outcomes of Peter and Judas suggest to you whenever you desert, deny or betray him? It suggests to me that we take ourselves back to the feet of Jesus, back to the foot of the cross, however you want to put it, and just say, it's me again. I'm here again. Forgive me. You don't try to strike a deal with God. You don't try to put things right on your own terms as some kind of bargaining position. I mean, that's what Peter did. He returned the money that he had taken in payment for his betrayal of Jesus, but the Jewish leaders weren't interested, so it didn't work. Uh, you just come back to Jesus and you say, it's me again. Made a mistake again. Sinned again. I'm sorry again. Forgive me again. And of course, friends, he does. And I want to say quite literally, that makes a hell of a difference. We're going to finish by praying. Uh, we're going to do it uh, a little bit differently today. I want to give uh, everyone a decent chance to reflect. When I say a decent chance, I'm thinking like a genuine two minutes. <laughs> Two minutes of quiet in church, how astounding. Uh, if you want to pray, pray. If there's a thing you've been reflecting on or thinking of or that was most startling, write it down and pray through that. If you just want to think, that's fine. If you even want to um, chat kind of on the quiet and pray with the person next to you, that'd be okay to do. I think we can bear a dull murmur in here. 
And then after a couple of minutes of reflection and prayer, I'll lead us in a closing prayer and then we'll finish our service. There you go, a couple of minutes. Let me finish with the closing prayer. Heavenly Father, move our hearts to love one another sacrificially and practically and deeply and broadly. And Lord, as we just consider the desertion and the betrayal and the denial of Jesus by his closest earthly friends, once again praise you for his obedience unto death on that lonely cross. We further understand that he understands our own loneliness, those times when we have been betrayed. And yet, Lord, whenever we betray him, deny him, desert him in many and various ways, help us to come back to the foot of the cross, acknowledging our betrayals, our denials and our desertion, asking forgiveness and warm our hearts knowing that that is indeed what he came to do, forgive us. For all these things, we lift them to you in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.